Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Isabel Mounier. It's July 18th, 2022. We're at Lavinia Wines in Carleton. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Why wine? Oh my gosh. Um, I did not, um, I don't come from a wine drinking family whatsoever. I grew up in Quebec. I'm from, I'm French Canadian. And uh, my father was a high school teacher. My mother was a stay at home mom. They didn't drink at all. Um, if we had a bottle of wine at Christmas, that was about it in our house when I was growing up. I would say that it was, when I was growing up, I had a huge love for food. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing that I'm not 300 pounds today because I enjoyed very much. I used to think when I was a, a young child that it would be terrible if I lost my sense of taste, mm-hmm. whereas some people think they don't want to get blind or anything like that. And that turned me into um, my undergraduate degree, which was I did hospitality, hotel and restaurant management to begin with. My first job was working in the kitchen, um, cooking foods. And um, ultimately, when I did that degree, I had to take a sommelier class as part of my degree. And that definitely, at a 19-year-old person, opened me up to um, the world of wine. And I found it fascinating because it was so foreign to me. I was in Montreal at that point. We start drinking young there. We are allowed to, not 21 there. Um, and it's also what paved the path for my Pinot Noir uh, journey because um, the teacher for my sommelier class, as we were learning the wines of the world, he, at some point, we got to the chapter of Burgundy and Pinot Noir, and he started talking about how it's the most finicky grapes that one can handle, that how challenging it is because it is so thin-skinned. And at the same time, during the tasting aspect of the class, when we started tasting all these Pinot Noirs, I had this revelation of, this is amazing because I have never seen so many differences in the wine. It's very light, I can see through the wine, but the flavors that I get are so different from one wine to the next. That is, I, I guess I was uh, into the challenge. I wanted to figure out the challenge. But I was in Montreal. I didn't, had no clue. You know, to me, that seemed foreign to me, mm-hmm. learning how to make wine. There's no vineyards of consequences in Quebec at the time. Um, one thing led to another after I graduated. I started a career in hospitality. I worked for very high-end hotel and restaurants, um, Relais Chateau type properties, four stars, four diamond properties. And I focused that first career in the front end of high-end dining rooms. Mm. And the part of my job that I loved the most was creating the wine lists for these tasting rooms, uh, for these, sorry, restaurants, Mm -hmm. but also guiding 
customers to food and wine pairing. Like when they didn't know what to order with their meal, I it felt very gratifying to be able to recommend something based on their likes and dislikes and see them have a great evening mm -hmm. of their own. Mm -hmm. um, later, I've got tired of working in the wine and in, in the restaurant industry. I got tired of the late nights uh, of the uh, the you you work during all the holidays, Christmas, New Year's, when everyone's having a good time. So in my mid-20s, I was already looking for what else I could do. And because the last place, the last uh, Relais Chateau I worked at and that I opened was focusing on, um, uh, it was on Vancouver Island, it was focusing on, on um, BC wines only. And there was a, uh, a guiding company that came through called Butterfield and Robinson. And they do cycling trips mm -hmm. and hiking trips throughout the world. And um, I realized that they did, I was looking for what else I could do. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And through that, I saw an opportunity to, that I could move to France and be hired as a guide to lead cycling trips in the various regions of France and considering I spoke French. And so I decided to stop my hospitality and to go guide in France for a couple of years until I could figure out what's next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they loved the fact that I had that I spoke French and that I had wine knowledge. So they put me as a guide on wine-specific trips. So I became one of their guides for their Burgundy trips, for their trips in Alsace, um, for some trips in the Loire, not very many. And then one particular trip was a Bordeaux to Burgundy trip that has four days in Bordeaux, private plane to <laughs> Lyon, and then four days in Burgundy. It's an eight-day trip. So I was... Uh, and then there's a lot of wine tastings throughout, etc. So during those two years working for Butterfield and Robinson, their headquarters in this, is in Bone in Burgundy. And that means that every time you come back from a trip, you check in with the main office and then you, and then you check out your next trip and you go on the road. And during those two days, you're in Bone. You're in the center of Burgundy. And so I met some local people there. I met some wonderful people there. And a friend of mine was looking into schools and her and I started talking about, that's when it became possible. Mm -hmm. That's when from the small person from Quebec started thinking, I can stay here. Mm -hmm. I can go to school. I can learn how to make wine. I'm already here. So that's what I did. <laughs> and I enrolled in um, I enrolled in a postgraduate degree because I already had a degree mm. in uh, at the University of Dijon, mm. and because at the time I didn't know I knew I loved wine I knew I loved Pinot in particular, but I didn't know which aspect exactly I loved. So the the first postgraduate degree that I did was. Uh, 
viticulture, enology, and international commerce of wine. So it had a 50-50 uh, marketing aspect and a 50-50 viticulture and enology because I needed to figure out, I didn't know which one I liked the mm -hmm. most. So I needed to figure that out. And through my first year there, it became very clear to me that the technical lessons about viticulture and enology I was totally into, and the marketing and commerce ones, not so much. <laughs> so we, as part of the postgraduate, we had a six-month internship to do, and we had to write a thesis. And so I ended up telling my, most people were doing that on the, on the marketing side, mm -hmm. and I ended up telling my course directors, look, I appreciate the marketing side. I can write a thesis on the marketing side, but my internship I would like to do on the production side. Will you okay that? And at the time, I thought that I would come back to Canada and work in the wine, wine industry somewhere in Canada. So I got an internship to work at a small winery on Vancouver Island called Ventry Schultz Winery. And Ventry Schultz was family owned. It was a man, a married couple. He was from Moderna in Italy and she was from Australia. And the winery that they started, they did wine as well as traditional balsamic vinegar. And I went to work with them for the six months. And at the time they were planting, they were doubling the amount of land that they were planting. Mm -hmm. So part of the thesis was, how to uh, forecast the production and where we're gonna sell, figure out the sales channels and how to make the marketing plan for them, basically, based on that growth. And in the meantime, I learned a lot working in their vineyard and in their winery. And when I, but I learned a lot, but at the same time, I realized that when I was working there, they kept asking me questions because I had just come, come from Burgundy from France and I had just studied there. They were asking me questions as they were planting all their land that I could not answer, such as, here are our soils analysis. What varietals should we plant here? What density should we plant at? What rootstock scion combo is the best? And I realized that the program I'd done in France was wonderful, but it had not prepared me to work in a new world because you don't make those decisions in Burgundy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You only plant Pinot mm -hmm. or Chardonnay. You only plant at 10,000 plants per hectare. So there's a lot of, th you don't decide to irrigate or not. You just cannot irrigate. Mm -hmm. So I realized during that internship that I need, that if I was going to make a difference in the new world, which is probably where I was gonna end up, I needed more training. So, I enrolled for another postgraduate in New Zealand, and I went to Lincoln University to do that. Um, when, with regards to said thesis, um, technically I was supposed to, I needed to uh, present my thesis. I needed to go back to France to present my thesis. And my course directors said, you know, we take a field trip to California every year, so instead of making you fly back here, why don't you present your thesis at UC Davis in front of a mixture of professors from there and us, 
and as well as in front of the new group of class so that they can see what that's like and <laughs> what it's like to do this sort of thing. So instead, so I accepted because it was much easier for me to fly down to Sacramento and do the, the presentation on my way to New Zealand than it was to fly back to France. So I ended up at Lincoln University. Um, the reason for that choice had a lot to do with cool climate, mm -hmm. had a lot to do with Pinot Noir um, that I wanted to learn, and I also wanted a um, like the new world perspective, mm -hmm. more of the science and how to understand and how to be able to make the best choices when there are these choices to make. Mm -hmm. um, in New Zealand, I met my husband because we were sharing, we were in the same class. And um, what else did I do? It was a one-year program. Then I started working in New Zealand um, after I finished. I worked for a winery called Felton Road. I think one thing of importance that I would say is that I did not like the new world aspect of wanting to choose between viticulture and winemaking. So I really felt that it was hand in hand mm -hmm. and that and that probably because I started in Burgundy that the people there, they're vignerons. They they farm the land so that they can make wine. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn every aspect. I wanted to know that if I can do things well in the vineyard, then I know how to handle what comes to the winery and I have the best chances of making great wine. So in New Zealand, so throughout my work experiences, I've always very carefully made sure that I could work in the vineyards as well as in the winery mm -hmm. and that it was a complete internship. I will come to you in the spring, I will work in the field the entire season, and then we're gonna go in a winery, and I will make the wines in the winery. Um, so that's what I did at Felton Road. I worked at Saracen Estate in New Zealand, and at some point I told my husband, as we were dating at the time, I said, I love you very much, but now that I've seen the new world and the science, I need to go back to the old world <laughs> because now I'm starting to be a little too, I don't want to lose the natural approach and now I'm starting to be a little too concerned about bugs and <laughs> how things can go wrong and I, said, I need to go back to the holistic approach that Burgundy has to offer. So we split for temporarily, he stayed in New Zealand and I went back to Burgundy. And that's when I had my first um, mentorship, I would say, because I worked there for a domain called Domaine de la Vougerie. At the time, it had just been created, and the winemaker there was also French-Canadian, but had been living in Burgundy for a really long time. His name is Pascal Marchand, and he had he been making wine for in Pomar, for Cantarma, for many, many years. And then he was in charge of this new project. And I like to think that he probably agreed for me to go to work with him because I pestered him enough 
A and B because I was also French Canadian so he kind of wanted to help me out another French Canadian making wine somewhere else um, and um, so I went back to Burgundy worked at the Mendeleev Vougeret and that was owned by the Boisset family and at the time they were creating a joint venture in Canada called Clos Jordan with Vincor Canada so ultimately they asked um, long story short um, Pascal um, felt uh, after I worked at the Mendeleev Vougeret Pascal asked me if I would be willing to go back to Canada to work for the Clos Jordan project which I accepted and then at that point I asked my husband will you please join me I have a, this great work opportunity mm -hmm. you know in Canada for a, couple, for a handful of years this is a brand new project they have grand plans of building a multi-million dollar building designed by Frank Gehry <laughs> they have all kinds of so can you you know so he agreed and he came to he joined me in Canada uh, and we started the I started the Clos Jordan project um, for two years what, what year was that that was 2004 in 2000 actually I moved there in 2004 and I didn't move back until I didn't move here till 2007 mm -hmm. so from 04 to 07 mm -hmm. um, at some point when I was at the Clos Jordan um, and it was everything I wanted because it had four estates vineyard it was growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay only they were farming organically because of the because of the venture joint venture between Boisset and Vincourt Canada it was well funded and Pascal Marchand was the consultant on the project so I could still continue to learn from him mm -hmm. and but it turned out that my husband wasn't very happy in Niagara <laughs> with the snow <laughs> and the, the area. So after about two or three years, we decided as a couple to move to Oregon. Hmm. So I told, um, I remember vividly telling Pascal uh, at Clos Jordan that we had made a personal decision to move to Oregon. My husband had gotten a great opportunity as head winemaker for Argyle, mm -hmm. so it was my turn to sort of follow and find what I could do here. Okay, so we'll pick up the Oregon part in a second. I want, I want to go back for a moment. It's a very interesting path, and you mentioned the kind of the balance of the new world, old world, and mm -hmm. kind of going back and forth between. So tell me about uh, while you're doing that, you're being formally educated, you're also working in, in all these different places. Tell me about sort of starting to develop your winemaking knowledge and winemaking style. And at what point did you start to kind of become conscious of, I want to make this kind of wine or I want to do it this, this kind of way? Um, I think it was throughout my path. I like to, th I, th I've, I think my path was relatively unique in the fact that I flipped back and forward between the two a couple of times. But at the same time, the Burgundy side was the foundation of where I started. Mm -hmm. And that was when the sponge started taking in everything. Mm -hmm. And um, so 
from the cycling days when I was cycling around and going wine tasting in those cellars, the people I met and um, the wines that I tasted through that, um, some of them were very magical to me and the ones that were the most magical were the ones that were more natural, organic, biodynamics. So throughout those years, even before I started going to school, I quickly learned that, yes, I like the challenge that Pinot Noir can provide <laughs> with its thin skin and finickiness. B, I like the natural approach, so I really need to know and learn how to do it in a natural way. I could also tell that at the time that some of the so-called so natural wines could be faulty, mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily be good. Mm -hmm. So I put it upon myself as a challenge to make sure that I was like, I know there's a way to do this so that it can take, it doesn't need to be faulty because you're natural. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a way to do this, that you can make natural wines and have it elegant, beautiful, and uh, complex and mm -hmm. like a sound commercial wine too, mm -hmm. not just a natural wine. Mm -hmm. So that's the quest that I started putting myself on mm -hmm. over time. And that's what made the choices of going to Felton Road, um, I had a series of mentors, I think, in my, in my career. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the quest of going to felt, seeking the places that could teach me organic biodynamics, viticulture, mm -hmm. and winemaking in a good way mm -hmm. that was natural, yet um, that would be able to be high quality mm -hmm. too at the same time. Did I answer your question? Mm -hmm. okay. When it comes to the, you mentioned the, the viticulture being such an important part as well. I'm curious about the viticulture education you were getting and uh, what point did you feel sort of confident in that part of things in, in understanding viticulture and in, and in kind of pushing the vines toward, pushing the viticulture style to where you wanted it to be? Um, that's built up over time. Um, I think that my first, uh, like I said, my first job on Vancouver Island at Venturi Schultz, they put me in a vineyard and they, it was, they were self-thought. So it was the first time they, they had someone that had been with them that had education. Mm -hmm. proper. So they challenged and asked me a ton of questions on the viticultural side that I could not answer all of it. But that really started the, the huge interest. Mm -hmm. um, then when I pursued in New Zealand, um, the classes were much more in depth. So then I, I started to very much better understand the viticultural side of things. Then when I went to Felton Road, they put me in the vineyards and I was telling them that I wanted to learn every, you know, and the vineyard manager kind of took me under his wing and started teaching me how they were planting and all kinds of things. So that built up over time. When I went back to France, I told Pascal, because he was farming, uh, they were farming in house, but only their Grand Cru vineyards were farming biodynamically. And I was, I asked specifically, I want to learn your biodynamics. And so he put me on a team in Chambord Musigny that has, on the, on the team in Chambord Musigny that has the most Grand Cru so mm -hmm. that I could do all of the BD, the biodynamic stuff as well in the vineyards. When I, when Pascal recommended me to go over to the Tlo Jordan, uh, the Tlo Jordan was designed, although it was in Niagara, 
it wasn't a winemaker's job, it was a vineyard manager and winemaker's mm -hmm. job. Um, so we had to farm our vineyards. That's when I became responsible for the farming of those vineyards. And in Niagara, it's incredibly challenging because it's really humid. So farming organically in Niagara, <laughs> with that type of weather, mm -hmm. you become very in tune. You become an expert at pest and disease management <laughs> and what you can do with it um, because you get everything under the sun. When I first moved to Oregon, just a big thing, I kept, I frustrated some people around because I was like, it's so easy farming here. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, coming from Niagara, it felt easy. Mm -hmm. You have powdery mildew, but there's not too much else mm -hmm. as far as disease pressure is concerned. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last couple of years have been different, but. <laughs> spoke too soon. Yes, I spoke too soon, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Before coming here, what were your impressions of Oregon's wine and Oregon's wine industry? Before coming here, um, the last uh, restaurant that I opened um, before I got into wine had a West Coast only wine list um, with lots of wines from British Columbia because that's where we were. Um, but also Washington, Oregon, and California. Mm -hmm. And because I was Pinot-centric, I got a lot of Pinots from, at the time, Ken Wright's and mm -hmm. Domenger in Oregon, and these, these labels coming in mm -hmm. onto our wine list. And um, my impression of the Oregon wine industry was that um, it was burgeoning, it was uh, new, but it had a tremendous amount of potential. Mm -hmm. How did it compare? How did the wines compare to the, those in the places you'd been? Um, I found them, um, I think that the three best areas that I loved the Pinots from were New Zealand, Oregon, and Burgundy. Mm -hmm. in Niagara, in um, Niagara and in the Okanagan Valley, they each have their own set of challenges that I don't think are quite performing quite as well. And when I was trying to, I think as a winemaker, you end up choosing where to live based on your passion. So when my husband and I were having these discussions, we seriously considered staying in New Zealand, um, but it was too far from the rest of the world. Um, and we made Oregon our home in huge part because it had all those things, mm -hmm. uh, the wines, um, to me, I felt very strongly that it, they could deliver as well as Burgundy. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to a part of that. So tell us about once you got here in 2007, uh, what was the first thing that you did? What was your kind of initial role here? So that's a good question. Um, I'm gonna pick up where I left. Uh, when I told Pascal that I was decided to move to Oregon, um, he was somewhat disappointed. Um, and he, uh, he also rained on my picnic a little bit <laughs> because I was telling him that, I want, that we had made the decision to move to Oregon and that I thought there was a ton of potential as we just discussed mm -hmm. and that, and I'm, this was 15 years ago or more, but mm -hmm. there was lots of potential and it, within the valley and that I felt that I could, you know, make a, make a mark within Oregon and help 
the wine industry developed. And Pascal just kind of rained on my picnic and said, Isabel, they've been making wine there for 20 years. There's a lot of talent there. Louisa Ponzi, blah, blah. <laughs> he says, and the wines are, mm, uh, mm, uh. <laughs> so, so he said, I don't really think they have the terroir. Mm -hmm. And that kind of uh, gave me, again, I guess I'm a, I love challenges. That also gave me the, I'm going to prove you wrong, <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> and, but anyway, he took it in stride. He was happy that that's where we wanted to move. And long story short, he, um, at the same time, there was, um, Eveningland was starting in Oregon, a brand new project called Eveningland Vineyards. And um, the owner from New York, Mark Tarlov, um, was in talks with Dominique Lafont in Burgundy to be consultant on that project. And Dominique um, was really interested for the first time to do something outside of Burgundy mm -hmm. and come and consult. And so Mark, the owner, told him, well, you got to find a winemaker. And at some point in Burgundy, it's not what you know sometimes, it's who you know. At some point in Burgundy, um, at the Saturday morning market in Bone, Dominique bumped into Pascal. So Dominique asked Pascal Marchand, hey, I know you do consulting around the world. I know that you travel to a few different places. I may have a new project starting in Oregon. Do you know of anyone that would want, that would be qualified and be a good to be a winemaker on this new project? So the next thing I knew, I had an email from Pascal saying, giving me Dominique Lafont's email and saying, you need to reach out to Dominique Lafont because regarding a potential new project in Oregon. So I did. Long story short, uh, I ended up on a phone interview with Mark Tarlov in New York. And then during that first phone interview, Mark invited me to fly over to New York for lunch. <laughs> so that I could meet with Pascal, with, sorry, with Dominique mm -hmm. uh, for one day. And it's a short flight. It's, I flew from Buffalo, New York to New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, but to me, that was amazing. I was parachuted into this like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> this little extraordinary thing of, okay, sure, I'll fly to New York for lunch. Uh, sounds a little extravagant, but I'll do it. Um, and sat down with Mark and Dominique. We discussed the Evening Land project. And a month later, I was here. I arrived here uh, in June of 2007. The lease on the vineyard, uh, on the Seven Springs vineyard. So Evening Land was only one vineyard. Seven Springs, 65 acres of old vines planted in the Eola Amity Hills. It's a beautiful site. So I was in charge of being here. But when I showed up in June, we had a vineyard that was being farmed by a management vineyard management company. We had nothing else. So not even, a sh we didn't own a shovel or anything. <laughs> so from, I had in two months had to find a winery space and sued it <laughs> so that we could do harvest, um, et cetera, et cetera. So no small feat. Uh, it was uh, challenging to say the least. It was a, an interesting time for that summer. 
Uh, I ended up uh, renting space in an existing winery, Laurel Ridge Winery, for the first harvest. I ended up as well. Um, I anticipated because we had so many tons from those 65 acres, it was, you know, a 120 to 150 ton project. As I rented space into the winery, I realized that I was the biggest client there and that most likely the other people trying to make wine there would get upset with me, the amount of hours that I needed the sorting line for, or et cetera, et cetera. So I ended up finding a sorting line and a destemmer in a press for rent, brand new, from another new project that was not gonna get started. I, they had purchased the equipment, but they weren't starting that year. So I rented the equipment, and I actually, the press I brought to Laurel Ridge to have my own press, to not compete mm -hmm. with them, theirs, and their press was terrible anyway. <laughs> it was terrible. It was an old Italian press that, yeah. And the uh, sorting line I set up in the shed at Seven Springs Vineyard. <laughs> I set up the sorting line and the destemmer in the shed at Seven Springs, undercover, mm -hmm. rented the generator, got some electrical done, a diesel generator, so that we could sort and destem there and bring the fermenters to Laurel Ridge to be out of their, out of their way. That was how the first vintage was processed. And honestly, it was the best decision that I've made because it ended up being a rainy harvest. Mm -hmm. And because it ended up being a rainy harvest, there was few and far between days that you actually could pick and process. So if I hadn't done that at the vineyard, at the winery, it would have been a, a total nightmare, mm -hmm. a total nightmare. So. Um, it was interesting to work with Dominique as a consultant, so I could say he was my second mentor. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, which was wonderful, he taught me many things. Uh, and when I first moved to Oregon, another little story that I can say is that the 65 acre at Seven Springs had 58 acres of Pinot Noir, three acres of Gamay, and four acres of Chardonnay. And I was super excited to see that there was four acres of Chardonnay at Seven Springs, and Dominique was not. <laughs> and, and he was like, and he was like, is, every time he would come and every, on if his visits, we would taste all the Oregon Chardonnays around, and he would be a little bit like Pascal beforehand. The wines are just not good. I don't think this area can make good Chardonnays, Isabel. <laughs> And again, to me, it was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been an interesting journey. What did you think of Seven Springs Vineyard as you were getting, getting to know it? Um, I thought it, I've never worked. So Seven Springs is quite different, mm -hmm. um, meaning it was planted in two stages. And the old vines, the first 30 acres or so were super wide, planted in the early 80s. You can drive your pickup truck between the rows. It was planted by a tree planter, so the rows are like, ah, <laughs> not quite straight. So that was a little shocking to me. Having said that, the amount of vigor was also shocking to me. The soils here are a bit more fertile than what I was get used to. So learning how to tame that vigor in the vineyard um, w was important to make sure that we don't have leaves that are like dinner plates and green and so introduce some stress mm -hmm. to the vines. 
the ease of the weather, meaning it rains in Oregon, but generally the summers are nice and dry. Mm -hmm. So your disease pressure is relatively low compared to other places. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, it was magical to have an established vineyard already, something that had already was already 30 years old. Um, there was some phylloxera issues, but having that established of a vineyard was really, really amazing and a wonderful start. Mm -hmm. I was, I felt very uh, blessed and very lucky to be able to work with that site. You had talked about your the importance to you of organic and biodynamic farming, and I'm, I'm guessing it was not that way when you took it over. So tell me, tell me about the transition then. Tell me about getting it up to the where you want it to be. Um, so no, it was not that way when I took it over. And I asked as soon as I started um, in 07, I asked uh, Mark, the owner, and I discussed with Dominique. Dominique was easily convinced because he already farms biodynamically in Burgundy. So I asked if, it, if we could convert the vineyard to organic and biodynamic and got the okay and we started the transition in the first year mm -hmm. um, we started a transition in the first year and which was very exciting and I could tell you that within about three years you started seeing the fruit of the rewards harvesting the fruit of your efforts uh, after about three years by 2010 there was a better balance overall in the vineyard, um, and there was also better acid balance in the must in the in, in the fruit that you harvested. Mm -hmm. um, and we started seeing that we needed to do much less adjustments inside the wineries because the fruit that would come into the wineries was more in balance. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, very interesting. We never went. A lot of soil management and a lot of complex. Uh, the soil management was not straightforward because the vineyard is diverse, and you have different depths of topsoils. So some areas you need to have ground covers. Some areas it's better if you don't. So it was a bit complicated as far as the soil <laughs> management can be because of the variety and what the the diversity of the site. Mm -hmm and learned a lot about phylloxera management because it was self-rooted and there was some phylloxera lenses that we needed to try and rein in and not uh, preserve those areas mm -hmm. for the long term. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the first wines then. You mentioned how the interesting process for the 07 wines. Tell me about how they turned out and what, you're kind of, what you kind of took away as the potential of the project. Um, the first wines turned out very nice. I, I was a little shell-shocked when I came here I, I, because I discussed the fact that it was a wet harvest, the first harvest that I had. And I remember in sometime in September, my husband was at Argyle, and then I remember people starting to pick um, what I would call a bit like panic picking <laughs> because there's rain coming. And I was working with a local consultant um, uh, Steve Price that's at ETS and I when I saw that and I've never worked here in Oregon I never worked in the US never made wine here I called Steve Price with the weather forecast <laughs> open on my, on my computer 
And I said, Steve, I said, I see that people are starting to pick like significantly. And he says, yeah. And I said, because it's, it's, it says that it, it, they're picking because there's rain coming. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm new here, Steve. Can you please let me know what that means? <laughs> there's rain coming. Like, <laughs> I can see the weather forecast, but can you try to uh, make me understand what that means so that I can make the proper decisions? Mm -hmm. And he gave me the perfect answer. He was like, well, he says, you have a 10-day forecast. Here in Oregon, it changes too much. You can trust the next three days. That's going to happen. Over the next week, that probably can change. He says, but what's in, in for the next three days is going to happen. And when it's going to rain, you know, so you need to be, you need to know that rain will happen. But if you see areas in between those events, you know, it's maritime climate. It comes in waves like the ocean. When you see these will change and you need to work with it sort of thing. So that's what I did. And it was a bit of a gamble relying on the weather forecast, but I, I learned I learned a lot. I learned a lot that he was totally right. The first three days were the weather is pretty well forecasted mm -hmm. to the point where the weather can tell you it's going to start raining at 2 p.m. and you can schedule a pick that morning. Like it was pretty reliable. Mm -hmm. um, the wines in the end were beautiful. I was a little shocked. I felt like our peers, some people in the industry were talking too much about the rain and were just not singing the praise enough. I guess I came from an area where there's more challenges than that. So to me, that wasn't an issue. Mm -hmm. And I thought that the wines were beautiful, no matter what. We had good ripeness. They were beautiful. The Chardonnay, um, that's the one that I made a huge exception. And Dominique wasn't very happy with me because <laughs> in my first year, because there was rain coming. I mean, I called Steve Price, there was rain coming. And the Chardonnay was right on the cusp. And so many examples of Chardonnay that I had tasted were a little too ripe to my taste. So I wanted to make sure that I captured that Chardonnay not overripe mm -hmm. with some good racy acidity, nice flavors. And I also wanted to, in my mind, reds bounce back from rain events better than white grapes. So I could not, where I felt it was okay for Pinot to withstand a rain event or two and dry. I didn't feel it was okay for Chardonnay. So I picked the, Ch Dominique's co consulting contract was that he comes once during harvest for three days. I ended up picking the Chardonnay two days before he arrived. <laughs> <laughs> In the first year. <laughs> and when he arrived, we had just finished, I had not received my rented press yet, so we had just finished me and my harvest intern were pressing Chardonnay till 4 a.m. because the press at that facility was terrible. It was a central bag that wouldn't inflate properly. And even though you would tell it to give you two, pa two, two bars of pressure, you would get to one <laughs> and that was it. And it wouldn't do what you wanted it to do. Long story short, when Dominique arrived and I'm just starting to work with him, he's, he's my consultant. First thing he did is to go to the dump bin where the press had been dumped. He looks at what had been pressed and he's like, you still have juice in this, Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> this is not well pressed. I'm like, I know. 
<laughs> we wanted to slather that bag. <laughs> I know it's not well pressed. He's like, yeah, and he says, the vineyards at Seven Springs, the Chardonnay, for the vineyards, the old vines were on hanging trellis. Mm -hmm. They weren't even VSP. And when you're on a California sprawl, the cluster sits on top and they're super exposed to the sun, more sun exposure than people want, especially on whites. So he was looking at the, and he's like, wait, it's neon green on the one side and it's cooked by the sun on the other. Like what's going on with this? I'm like, sorry, <laughs> there's nothing I can do. We need to put it upright. You know, this is the, the trellising system at the vineyard that needs to be changed. But ultimately when he walked inside and he tasted the juice at the tank and I poured him a glass, he looked at it, he looked at me, he says, your juice is magnificent. I was like, wow, thank you. <laughs> After all that. <laughs> and that was it. And the first year he kept telling me that he thought we were lucky that the Chardonnay tasted good. <laughs> we had been lucky because he still wasn't convinced that we could do Chardonnay here. So small steps. It's amazing. <laughs> small steps. So tell me about the progress then of Evening Wine. You mentioned just just getting started in 2007. How did it progress over the next couple of years? And and what was your what were your kind of the the big moments for you, or the kind of the things you look back on fondly from those? Um, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, the progress was that we rented space in the first year, you know, and quickly just to get us going. By the second year, we found a building that was being built to suit sort of thing, um, just an industrial type building, but very functional. So we built that in the second year and outfitted it with our own equipment, which made me feel a lot better um, in West Salem. By the for fourth or fifth year, Evening Land was already, they had making a little bit of wine in California mm -hmm. and they had the Oregon winery. So we had a, a, a Santa Rita Hills winery. We had a winery in Oregon. And then over time, Mark Tarlov also wanted a winery in Burgundy. So Evening Land did that and acquired the three wineries. Um, over time, what I look fondly of, actually, is that by 2010, in California, the winery was in the Santa Rita Hills, but we had one vineyard in, on the Sonoma Coast called the Occidental Vineyard, and there was plans to, to get more fruit from the Sonoma Coast area. So I was asked if I could be responsible for the Sonoma Coast wines, and I had never worked there. So I thought that that would be hugely interesting mm -hmm. for me to be able to see the difference between mm -hmm. the Seven Springs fruit and what I work with here and down there. So I accepted and ended up, um, basically ended up flying down to Santa Rosa once a month or so during the growing season to follow the vineyards that we were purchasing from there. I set up a, um, uh, AP facility in, in Santa Rosa, and my assistant winemaker at the time, whom was from down there, I asked her to, I said, during harvest, you can go make the reds down there and be close to home sort of thing. And so I put her in charge of working there on a the day-to-day. So I flew down and made all the picking decisions and worked on the protocols with her. The one thing that she didn't get to make down there is on the Chardonnay side, we picked it, we pressed it, and we, brought it to Oregon as juice 
and then we filled the barrels and fermented it in barrels at the Oregon facility mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to be close to those barrel fermentations and things like that. So I look fondly of the experience I had in the Sonoma Coast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was challenges with Evening Land because it grew too fast and it couldn't absorb everything that it was doing. Um, but the, those successes of, for me, being able to see work on the West Coast like this and mm -hmm. see both sides was hugely interesting. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Evening Land growing fast. It was a, obviously a very ambitious project. So mm -hmm. I'm curious uh, for you and your role, how did you sort of manage that ambition and how did you sort of keep your role uh, ma manageable as things were growing so quickly around you? Um, <laughs> that's also a good question. <laughs> In the beginning, it was a little bit difficult, uh, but um, the I was in charge of the Oregon project, and and things grew in other areas that were not necessarily part of me. So I was able to manage the Oregon winery um, pretty independently. Mm -hmm. Having said that, the were not that big, but I would, what I would call the corporate overhead uh, kept changing, <laughs> turning over. So. Uh, I laugh that I've never worked with so many CEOs <laughs> till the time that I worked for Evening Land because I worked for seven years at Evening Land and I probably worked with six different CEOs. It just kept changing and changing and changing. Same with the financial, <laughs> same with the, whoever was in charge of the budgets and accounting kept flipping around. Uh, so that was interesting to constantly have a new boss sort of thing to run things through um, and then at some point um, in the from 13 and uh, in 2013 um, at some point the company um, was too much in depth and needed needed to rearrange itself it could no longer sustain everything that it had done um, there was millions of dollars in debt and all kinds of things and so one of the parts um, at Evening Land too, as I mentioned, the CEOs. But one of the one of the good parts is also that um, starting in 2011, um, my current business partner with Lavinia, Greg Ralston, was hired as the CEO for Evening Land. Um, he was based in Santa Rosa, and he had a long wine career, in particular at Chateau Montelena, and a little bit with Wilson Daniels, mm -hmm. and ultimately. He was hired to manage all the three wineries and to help with the Chateau de Bligny and Bone. And he's the one that appointed me to the Sonoma Coast wines, which I found really interesting. And Greg and I had a great relationship, but the ownership of Evening Land was having trouble um, and wanted a huge reshuffle. And so that's when um, I left, mm -hmm. and, and Greg left as well in early 2014, right around the same time. So before we get on to your next project, I'm curious, in that time, how had you seen the wines develop and, and the vineyard develop? Like by the time you left Evening Land, how, how are the wines oh. changed and how are the vineyards changed? Um, the wines defined themselves every year as we got to know the vineyard better. Um, that's the part that I'm the most proud of, was that with that 65 acre vineyards, there's a few things that got, uh, then we planted a new, I planted 
15 acres at Evening Land of new vines with some interesting clonal mix and other things. And um, the wines uh, definitely got better and better with every vintage as we learned A, the site, B, as I learned, the area and how to deal with the vintages. That's what's interesting here in Oregon is the vintages are different, but you need to also adapt to each one. Um, and uh, I was very proud of the results of what we made in the bottle. We had some amazing you know, scores and mm -hmm. recognitions um, from those wines that I think are uh, pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was the great, the great side of things. Mm -hmm. So as it came time to leave, did you have an idea what you wanted to do next? As it came time to leave, um, I was very into, uh, like I was very sad to leave Evening Land because I didn't want to. Um, I had poured my heart and soul into that vineyard, into that project, and I uh, felt very sad to say goodbye to that vineyard, especially with the new areas of plantings that I had designed mm -hmm. and that I wouldn't get to work with anymore and see what happens to the fruit of my labor sort of thing. Um, but ultimately, it was necessary. So when I sat back uh, making the decision of leaving, when I sat back to try to figure out what's next, um, there was a couple of, uh, like, Headhunters called me asking me if I wanted to work here or there, or there was some positions available in Oregon too. So you have to start thinking as to what you want to do next. And I quickly realized that the one thing I didn't want to do was to become winemaker for an existing winery. Because I realized that I had put my heart and souls in, in, in what I had just created and it had changed and it was pulled away, you know, and I had to leave because it was changing. And therefore, all those efforts went for nothing. So the desire to be um, in charge of my own destiny was super important. I was like, if I am doing to create something that I am very proud of, I need to be able to not have the rug pulled from under my feet sort of thing and be able to keep it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it became very clear to me right away that I wasn't going to be a hired soul, that I needed to be my own boss and that I needed to create my own thing, mm -hmm. um, so that I could stay in charge of where it goes and see it go where I want to see it go. Um, and that's what Lavinia came about. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the the sort of genesis of that idea of uh, dis deciding kind of the where and how that project would happen. Uh, tell me and, and how it came and how you kind of got it off the ground. So how I got it off the ground um, is uh, some of it has to do with opportunities at the time, but how it got off the ground. A few things were certain to me. I needed to. I wanted to stay in Oregon, so going to work on a new project somewhere else was of no interest. This is where our life is. Uh, and this is what I love is the Oregon wines. I, the, the strong feeling that the Oregon wine industry needs to be brought up, you know, continue to blossom. Um, and I'm well invested in it was super important. 
because I'd worked with one vineyard site at Seven Springs predominantly throughout my time, throughout my seven years there, I felt that I wanted to diversify that. I wanted a better understanding of the various aspects, but I also wanted to show people what the various aspects of the Oregon wine industry can be, um, of its vineyards. Mm -hmm. I felt that because Oregon is such a young area, um, Quite often, what people, what makes people dream when you have a world-class wine region, it's its famous vineyards. It's the vineyards that people like. Oh, it's Cardon Charlemagne, or oh my gosh, it's Romani Conti, or oh wow, it's uh, there's a, f a few in California too. It's Hirsch, or it's mm -hmm. whatever else. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel Oregon had that quite yet, and I felt that the one of the I wanted to explore quality vineyard sites and I wanted to help make vineyards famous as a way to bring up the Oregon wine industry and on a world stage. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how La Vigna came about. Mm -hmm. um, as I was thinking about that and as I was thinking how to do it, I was also thinking that as much as I'm well versed with um, and I felt pretty confident with winemaking and viticulture, on the business side, I was not confident at all. So Greg and I were still in touch, and I would say that Greg Ralston became my third mentor mm -hmm. in the wine industry. Um, he was home-based in Santa Rosa, but like me, he had just left Evening Land. He had a strong pedigree on the marketing side, on the business side of things, through his decades at mm -hmm. Mount Elena and beyond. Mm -hmm. And we got along, so it felt uh, natural. Like he actually proposed it when I was like, we we're talking like, what do you want to do next? And I was explaining this. He was like, well, if you decide you want to partner up, I'd, I'd be in. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be keen on it. We can. And it felt like a perfect pair. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, now I will have a mentor to help me not screw up the business side of things, sort of, you know, and learn. And at the same time, um, get to do you know what we want and showcase some beautiful vineyards. Mm -hmm. And um, both of us are not rich, so we've grown organically, you know, um, over the past seven years, uh, little by little by little. But the goal of we've designed at its core. There's a few things we do that is not typical within an Oregon winery. Um, First of all, we only make single vineyard wines. Mm -hmm. We don't make a Willamette Valley blend, or we don't make a super high-end reserve at the top. So we're not a pyramid like this. We're just here mm -hmm. and showcasing these vineyards mm -hmm. that have terroir, that have pedigree. That's one of the big, so, so our wines in the market are relatively line priced. Mm -hmm. They're all worth the same because they're all from different single vineyards. Uh, and the other thing that we do a little differently, and we had, in, initially it was financially difficult to achieve, but now I'm very happy to do that, is that we don't, um, we don't, we release on a Burgundian schedule, we don't release on an Oregon schedule, which means that we bottle our wines at a year and a half, but we keep them in bottle for at least six months before we release them. We don't let the market make us release wines early. The wines are built to age well in the bottle. 
so we want to make sure that by the t that, that we hold them and that we release them not too early, mm -hmm. not too tight, mm -hmm. that we want them to be beautiful and more uh, together mm -hmm. when they get released, more polished, more yes. finished. So in the beginning, when you decide that you're going to take another nine months before you start generating revenue, <laughs> it's a big hit, but it pays after mm -hmm. the fact, once you start in that. So I like your. I really like the way you described the the sort of vineyard and uh, the the vineyard the, the the need to kind of elevate vineyards. That's mm -hmm. an interesting perspective that we haven't heard much before. And obviously, there are well-known vineyards in Oregon, at least by Oregon standards, well-known. So I'm curious, as you went looking, what were you looking for in vineyard sites that you thought would have the terroir you wanted, and how did you go about sort of securing and getting to know those vineyards? Good question. Before I answer that you made a comment that I feel is super important. There are some well-known vineyards within Oregon. Mm -hmm. But if I go to the New York market and I launch with my distributor and I'm in a room full of sales rep and I ask them to name me five Oregon vineyards, they can't. Mm -hmm. They don't know. Mm -hmm. Locally, we know them. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't yet been there, which... Um, now, but with regards to how to select these vineyards, um, there was a few things, um, there was a few important things and we continue on that path today. Um, it was important vine age. So we don't work with anything that's less than 25 years old. Um, so the vineyard has had to be planted at least by, you know, at least by the mid-995 or 2000 at, at, at the mm -hmm. minimum. Mm -hmm. Anything newer plantings than that does not, in my mind, have the established rooting system in order to showcase um, yet mm -hmm. the attributes of the vineyard. Um, obviously, there are some of my preferences with regards to soil types and exposures, of course, uh, not a, uh, drop dead scenario, but in order to, because stylistically I like more elegant wines, um, we tend to favor eastern slopes or southern slopes, never a west slope, uh, more on the eastern side, mm -hmm. morning sun as opposed to afternoon sun. Um, I prefer joris or volcanic type soils over the marine sedimentary, so I tend to be more keen on those sites. But with each site that we selected, there needed to be something unique or a certain je ne sais quoi type thing that uh, made us be like, oh, this will be distinctive. Mm -hmm. um, one of them in uh, that we worked with uh, for years uh, called Lazy River um, in Yamhill Carlton, the je ne sais quoi was the fact that that AVA doesn't really have jewelry soils, but that vineyard was all jewelry. And in an AVA that's known for its marine sedimentary soil, to have a jewelry soil site felt very unique. Mm -hmm. And that was super interesting. Mm -hmm. um, there is a toilet in the state uh, up north, was planted in the early 70s. It's on its own roots, but it's so secluded that it doesn't have any phylloxera yet. And it has laurel wood soils, which are pretty unique 
of it and their own rights. Mm -hmm. And it, I wanted to learn about that soil type and work with it. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of the vineyard selection that was super important is the partnership with the owners. Like I mentioned, like we're not rich, we've grown organically. And we wanted great relationships with our growers and the vineyard owners, the owners of these vineyards, so that each site that we secure fruit from, there is the ability to grow within the sites. Like, okay, these are the blocks that we choose to start with, and then we have the opportunity to grow at your vineyard with you, and you obviously will be willing and able and happy to do that with us, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of the that was important in the vineyard is that at each site that we work with, we don't so we source from more than one block. So even if we don't buy a lot, even if we just buy six tons, there needs to be at least a few areas for those six tons because this it's not a terroir-driven wine. If you source from one block and you end up putting triple seven on on the thirty three oh nine from this area in the bottle, mm -hmm. then it's a single clone. No, it is what it is. So anything that I, we favored mixed clone blocks if they existed mm -hmm. or at a minimum from each site I tend to favor blocks that complement one another mm -hmm. the cold section of the vineyard and the warm section of the vineyard that you can put together mm -hmm. um, in that way you get the true sense of the entire vineyard not just what the southeast corner can do <laughs> in that vineyard so on that note, I'm, I'm curious, you, you talked about the, your mentor kind of poo-pooing the idea that Oregon had the terroir. Uh, what, have you, what have been your observations of Oregon's terroir and, and the, especially the places you've worked with? Um, I think that a lot of, uh, I think that we're, we're still very young and I think that we are, uh, Oregon's terroir I think has a lot to give. Uh, I think we're still learning how to best showcase it. And that's what has shaped the last two decades is us fine-tuning mm -hmm. on how we can best showcase and to some degree make better decisions about how we plant and what we plant and how. Mm -hmm. um, the, it's interesting because I've given you the couple of stories of um, the, the things that I, from my previous mentors that I was like, okay, I'm gonna prove you're wrong, I'm gonna prove you're wrong. I can tell you that Dominique Lafon now completely believes in Oregon Chardonnay, absolutely. He just knows that you have to farm it different than peanut. He just knows that if you follow some specific guidelines mm -hmm. that he's used to, the results can be amazing. Mm -hmm. One of the, the upside of that is at some point, there was an event in London in the UK that another famous, famous Burgundian winemaker attended and the evening land wines were poured. And it was, I'll say the name, Christophe Romier. Christophe Romier came to the evening land table to taste my Pinot Noir. And he, it was poured in his glass, he smelled it. He looked at Mark Tarlov, he smelled it again, swirled it, he looked at Mark Tarlov, he says, wow, you can make wine like this in Oregon? And that is why I make wine. <laughs> To prove people wrong. <laughs> but also to, uh, the best reward is when people are tasting our wines and they go, wow. Wow. It's not the score. It's not 
whatever mm -hmm. it's the the best rewards that i've ever had is when people look at me and they go wow that's amazing mm -hmm. that really make an impressions on me mm -hmm. if you can create memories and memorable wines to people it doesn't matter if it's a christophe rumier or if it's just someone that was walking down the street no matter who it is making those impressions is the key mm -hmm. to me so tell me about the growth of Lavinia. You mentioned, obviously, the business marketing, not something you were terribly uh, familiar mm -hmm. with or, or excited about. So tell me about how it, how it has grown as a business and, and, and obviously the space we're in now and kind of what Lavinia looks like to you now of seven years in. Yeah. Um, Lavinia started uh, very small. We made uh, 1,200 cases in our first vintage. We sourced from five different vineyards, i.e. five different AVAs, um, approximately 250 cases from each. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very small. Um, we haven't grown a ton, but we are definitely growing. There's been some hurdles in the last couple of years, too. <laughs> um, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, you don't say. Um, but I think when we started, and I think every business plan that you make is always going to be subject to change as you make it, when we started, we uh, wanted, obviously, a strong direct-to-consumer program. Um, turns out, you know, some of the challenges of uh, not owning your own winery and making wine in someone else's space is that you don't cannot be a host quite as easily. Mm -hmm. So by default, we set up more distribution than we anticipated um, in, in many markets. Um, we are now, oh, we, have fifth, we are distributed in 15 markets. We are exported in five different countries. So Canada in particular. <laughs> um, so the uh, so that part in the beginning was like um, getting, now we're just starting mm -hmm. the DTC program, the direct consumer program. Um, and it's super important and it will, uh, and now this is driving our growth. So we started with uh, 1,200 cases in our first year. We are now at um, 3,000 cases and we want to grow to, by next year, to about 4,000 cases. Having said that, now we have the other challenge that it's more and more difficult to find fruit. I mean, there's a huge demand for fruit right now, in part because of outside investments, in part because of some of the weather events that we've had and everyone not making enough wine mm -hmm. and everyone wanting to make more. Um, so it's definitely a seller's market. Mm -hmm. But um, we, uh, the goal is definitely to continue the exploration of terroir and to find these sites that are distinctive and interesting and unusual mm -hmm. and to teach people mm -hmm. what they can be and hopefully help put these places on the map. So in that, in that growth then, tell me about how the past couple of years have gone. Obviously 2020 was a challenge in so many ways. So tell me about that hurdle for you. Um, what were the sort of decisions and challenges you had to make uh, in 2020 or had to deal with in 2020? And how did you, how did you come out the other side? Um, with the pandemic specifically, um, in 2020, we, um, we had to, by then we were 80% distributed mm -hmm. so our wine sales were 80% through the distributor channels channels and on and off premise 
and only 20% was direct consumer. Um, obviously, the distribution stopped completely with all the restaurants shutting down and everything. Um, but our DTC, even though it was, uh, even though it was only online because we did not have a space mm -hmm. or a tasting room. Oh, nobody went to tasting room anyway. Even though it was online, our DTC started building. Um, so it made sense after the one year of the pandemic. And so we had actually started looking for a space for a tasting room back in 2019. It just takes a long time to find the right place, the right size, in the right location, etc., etc. Um, so we had started casually looking for a tasting room that we can call our own. Um, and then the pandemic pushed that need further. Um, and we were super happy to get this space um, last fall, in the fall of 2021, finally. And now I can say that because of it, our sh the shift, we're, we're less reliant on distribution mm -hmm. and our sales, our DTC are uh, much more prevalent. And what about Harvest of 2020? <laughs> harvest of 2020. <sighs> we shall all forget it. Um, no, <laughs> don't mean to be so dear. Um, harvest of 2020, I had never dealt with any type of smoke. I mean, I've dealt with frost in my past. I've dealt with hail. I've dealt with all kinds of Mother Nature challenges. Smoke was not one of them. Mm -hmm. um, spring frost or autumn freeze or whatever. So it was foreign to me, but I knew it was bad. Um, and the beauty of, I would say, kudos to my business partner, Greg. I mean, he spent most of his life in, in, in Santa Rosa on the Sonoma Coast. He was much better versed in potential of smoke taint mm -hmm. and the adverse effect of what smoke taint can be than anyone up here was. Um, and I remember I was a little shocked because when I was talking, talking to him as the events were unfolding in September of 2020, he was telling me on the phone, he was like, if this lasts for more than 48 hours, forget it. Like, you're done. Like, if you have this amount of this thickness mm -hmm. of, of smoke in, forget it, after, after more than 48 hours, he says, we can do bucket ferments, we can test for smoke taint, but it's there. <laughs> like, it will be there. Uh, just, just know that. And um, so, long story short, we did not produce any wine in 2020. Um, we skipped the vintage. And with our grower partners, um, we had several discussions with each one of them as to how to ride this wave together. So we didn't necessarily leave them lurching or hanging, but we certainly had these discussions as to, okay, do you have crop insurance? How can we make this work? Um, and in some cases, we split um, the, the cost of the viticulture 50-50, mm -hmm. so that we both took the hit if they didn't have crop insurance, things like that. Mm -hmm. But we, we skipped the harvest, which in the beginning, I felt, I thought like, whoa, this is a big deal. Like you always think as a winemaker, I can probably make that work. <laughs> in retrospect, I'm very happy we did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was probably the best, cutting our losses was the best decision. Was there anything that you did during, in kind of in lieu of making wine, was there anything you did with the grapes to kind of prepare for the next time it happens, if it happens again, or do you feel any better prepared? 
I feel better prepared because I took a crash course in what smoked taint can be, learn to taste it um, with other people's wines and other things like that, learn to discern it, learn what the thresholds are. Um, and if it happens again, I think it has to be, again, this sort of partnership between wineries and growers where you share the what happens mm -hmm. with mother nature. And I, I was discussing with someone like, there are things like, what do you do in a grape contract? Like what sort of clause to include to protect all parties from smoke taint? And um, some contracts are like bucket ferments and analysis, etc. And I was suggesting to someone, I, was, I said, you know, honestly, everyone should just look at the air quality index. And once you have that threshold of air quality index within the valley, for air quality index plus time mm -hmm. equals, okay, now we need to renegotiate. Okay, now we need to take these, you know, these steps. Uh, so I feel better prepared for the future. I'm knocking on wood that it, it doesn't happen often here. Um, hasn't Hadn't happened significantly to the point where um, it was a problem for our harvest mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we have a good reprieve and we don't get this issue often, but it's, uh, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. but the partnerships are the most important thing, I think. So what comes next for Lavinia and what comes next for you? <laughs> Great question. Um, Lavinia will continue to build and promote the best side of Oregon that we can showcase. Uh, that's definitely a goal. Um, I want to continue to help the Oregon wine industry and make sure that it is recognized on the world mark on the world stage as a uh, quality area. Um, sustainability. I think a lot about how to. Uh, make sure that we're kind to our planet and we farm sustainably and we don't become a monoculture like you see in other areas and keeping the diversity. So those are the things that are on my mind mm -hmm. as to how to move forward. And also the opportunities that, okay, the climate is changing. How do we, re how do we change with it um, mm -hmm. in a good way? So you talked earlier about your sort of uh, kind of pre-impressions of Oregon wine from the wines you'd had before you'd been here. So tell me about uh, since you've been here to now, what are the what are the changes in Oregon wine? What how has it changed in the in those years, and what does the industry look like in 2022? Uh, in 2022, the industry is in a great spot. I think it has come forward leaps and bounds in the last 15 years that I have been here, both in terms of focusing uh, with its varietals and focusing on its techniques and on the quality that it can bring in the bottle. Mm. Uh, there's been some subtle shifts in varietals as well and other shifts that will continue, I think. And um, 2022 Oregon wines are, to me, much consistent and much better than they were 20 years ago. Um, and I think that will continue. The industry shares a lot. The industry is very communicative and they um, 
we are a true team and we talk about uh, our winemaking techniques and other things through our technical panels in order to make sure that we continue to Im improve. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we're most of the way there. We just need to get the rest of the world to see it. <laughs> you talked about other varietals and obviously you mentioned a, a, an interest in Chardonnay that kind of predates Oregon's interest with Chardonnay. So tell me how Chardonnay has changed since you've been here and what Oregon Chardonnay specifically is looking like right now. Um, Chardonnay has been, um, it, it, what's changed a lot is that when I came to Oregon, no one wanted Chardonnay, not even the owners of my winery. <laughs> um, I was a huge champion because I love making whites. Um, it challenges me in different ways than reds, and I think that Chardonnay is one of the things that I, I really enjoy. Um, and it's been wonderful to see how other wineries have fine-tuned and how uh, the plantable acreage has people are now into it mm -hmm. um, they're planting it they are making it um, they are refining their Chardonnay style and uh, it's much more accessible um, and it's from an industry perspective it is everyone's on board now it's about getting the consumer on board um, that's the part that, you know, making sure that Oregon Chardonnay becomes a category is important uh, because there's, there are some wonderful wines and coming out of it. And um, as a matter of fact, it's in demand now. It's hard to, I was concerned when I saw the craze of Chardonnay plantings 10 years ago that it would collapse, but it has not. People now it's difficult to find Chardonnay fruit, which means we need even more. So that's, that's wonderful. And what comes next for the Oregon wine industry? What does it look like? What will it look like in the future? Uh, I would like to see the Oregon wine industry to continue to be uh, the camaraderie that it has, mm -hmm. to continue to be wonderful hosts to everyone that comes. And with that, I would like to see a bit more infrastructure to, work, to help us be great hosts mm -hmm. um, and a bit of a destination. Um, so, and once that's done, I think the industry can, will continue to refine itself and find, um, I would like to see um, different trials on different varietals that we can plant other than Chardonnay and Pinot so that we're less of a one-trick pony and we can offer a little bit more diversity. Um, that's what I would like to see, especially mm -hmm. in terms of now seeing the, the, the warming of the climate and other things. And you talked a bit about what's next for Lavinia. Is there anything else on deck for you specifically? Are you any there anything else that you want to do? Projects you're looking into? Experiments you want to try? Oh, uh, I look forward to have a vineyard site so that I can go crazy with the planting of it. <laughs> That's the next step. When I when I can afford a piece of land and plant it, it would be wonderful. That's probably a first step. Would be developing a vineyard in out-of-the-box ways that I have in my head mm -hmm. that I would like to put 
on paper, on the land, mm -hmm. not just in my head. Uh, the next thing, hopefully, is build a legacy. Um, we have a son that's becoming a teenager. If I can get him to love the industry, not that he has to, but if he, if at some point he he gets interested and we can have s establishing a legacy, whether it's with my son or any other way, is also important. Mm -hmm. And on it, bucket. All right. So all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything you? We didn't cover here that you'd like to cover? I think this was a very complete interview. Thank you so much. I mean, now I need a sip of water. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time and your stories and your hospitality and your new awesome space here. We appreciate it and we'll let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.